Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 13 of the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew. I'm here with Stephen and very excited to have a very special guest with us today. Mr. Brian Zond is here joining us from Missouri. Brian, how's it going tonight? Hello, Andrew. Hello, Stephen. Good to be with you. And I'm pr- presuming you're in in St. Joe. Are you, you, you coming am. to us from St. Joseph? I'm coming to you from the basement of my house in St. <laughs> Joseph, Missouri, where I write right. my house. Awesome. I write my sermons in my study at church, but I write my books in the basement of my house. I don't know why. I just it's two different vibes, two different ambiances, and so yeah. So that's all, where I am. All good. St. Joseph, just north of Kansas City. Excellent, excellent. Well, it's great to have you on. For those of you who don't know Brian, and I would I'm going to assume most of our listeners would have at least heard your name, but Brian's the uh, founding pastor and lead pastor of uh, Word of Life Church, which is also there in St. Joseph, which uh, he founded a number of years ago, but also outside of being a pastor, is also an author of a number of books, uh, many of which Stephen and I have both read most recently, uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which I loved and read uh I guess that was like within the day it came out. I got I got that as well as a farewell to Mars. Uh, your your memoir, uh, Water to Wine, Beauty Will Save the World, a number of others, and then most recently, well, well to come soon, soon to be released, hopefully, um, postcards from Babylon, which hopefully we'll dive into a little bit here. But Brian, before we we dive into a number of hopefully awesome things tonight. Just wanted to say thank you, certainly for me personally. You've honestly been one of the more influential, like one of the most influential spiritual leaders and prophetic voices um, in my personal life over the last three to four years. Um, And so appreciate a number of things but mainly your ability to sort of bring not only be a church leader and, and you know be up in in and out day and night you know pastor but also be that prophetic voice being willing to speak up to all sorts of things not shy away from anything and maybe you know leading a church since the you know early 80s just leads you to not really care and say whatever it is you want to say and you're also like you really go at it on twitter too man like i like i yeah. uh, i appreciate all of that that's where my snarky side comes out. <laughs> I'm not real. Brian Zahn probably isn't quite as snarky as Twitter. Brian Zahn. Uh, my wife's working with me on this. <laughs> I keep telling her that snark is one of the gifts of the spirit, and and she yeah. buy it. I mean, yeah. it has its place, but you got to keep it under control, right? Right. No, absolutely. <laughs> well, Brian, do you mind? I, I know you've done this before, and uh, would love to just have you give your mini sort of bio here, yeah, um, okay. sort of co- you know your come up in in the faith and uh, how you started Word of Life, and maybe just a, a quick overview of of how you know basically your entire life story in a couple of minutes. It's hard to do quick now, but I'll give it a go. No, feel free, and don't, you don't have to speed. Well, what I am is I'm a Jesus freak. You know about the Jesus movement, the 1970s. That's that's where I come from. I'm really one of the, I'm about as young as you can be and really have been a part of that, but I really was. Can you explain briefly what that was? Oh, the, the Jesus movement was this countercultural response in some ways to the hippie movement, where where the hippies were... You know, just the, the counterculture movement of the 60s was having some correct discernment about what was wrong with the world. Where they came up short was not finding a better Messiah than the Beatles. <laughs> and in the middle of that, somehow, there, there was just this move of God where young people, initially beginning in California, spreading across um, – America, and then really reaching many other parts of the world, you had, I don't know what the numbers would be, hundreds of thousands of young people really coming to a vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. It was significant enough that it was on the cover of a magazine in the 70s. It was was a genuine spiritual sociological phenomenon. Wow. And... um, and I had my own experience of just encountering Jesus when I was 16 years old. And overnight, I went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak, just like that. And it, it surprised everybody in school, including me. <laughs> my friends would say, you know, after a few weeks, Fry, that's what everybody called me. That was my nickname, Fry. I, I, I can't believe what's happened to you. And I would say, 
I can't either. Yeah. <laughs> but it's happened. All right. So by the time I'm 17, I was leading a coffee house ministry. Now, the Jesus movement really didn't have its center in local churches, but in what we call coffee houses, which were sort of non-denominational, maybe affiliated with the church, maybe not, that were mostly music venues. Because the driving force of the Jesus movement wasn't preaching, it was music. And so that's where, you know, that's Larry Norman and Love Song and Keith Green and Second Chapter of Acts and Res Band and Phil yeah. and all those guys. And by the time I was 17, I was leading a coffee house ministry here in St. Joseph called the Catacombs, which was mostly a music venue. But, you know, it's where people were finding their orbit around Christ, and it was becoming more and more like a church. And I was starting to teach there. And so I tell people, look, I've been a pastor, or at least doing the work of a pastor, longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> and I, I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm not recommending that, but that's just in truth what happened. By the time I was 22 in 1981, which, by the way, makes me 59, so I'll save you all doing the math. Oh, we, were, we were crunching uh, numbers. <laughs> Get out your abacus and try to figure it yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> In, in 1981, November, the very end of the year, when I was 22, we took the step from being just a coffee house meeting on Saturday nights, although a lot of us were doing our life together, we were together all the time, to meeting on Sunday mornings, and, and the name became Word of Life Church, and that was three dozen years ago. That's 36 years ago. So I have spent my life as a local pastor, a pastor of a local church. It's Word of Life has been on an amazing journey. When we started the Jesus movement, that funnels us into the charismatic renewal, which was good until it wasn't. That's the way I describe it. Right. Uh, um, charismatic renewal sort of brought us a little bit into Word of Faith stuff that brushed up against religious right and all of that sort of stuff that was happening. I just I lived through the emergence of all of that, and around the I began to have a deep discontent with what was going on, but I didn't know what to do about it. So I just started, I just started backtracking and reading church fathers, philosophy, and the canon of Western literature. By the time I was 45, I reached a real crisis point. I began the year with a heroic 22-day fast. I got down to 130 pounds. People thought I was dying. Wow, no food? No food for 22 days? No, none at all. I hope to wow. never do anything like that again. I, I I, don't think I could do it again, but I did it then. And um, Wow. You know, and, and that just, that, that was the moment when I, when I told my church, I said, I'm packing my bags from the charismatic movement. Hmm. And packing my bags, I meant I am taking some things with me. I'm not rejecting it, but I'm moving on from it. And uh, so that put us on this this journey that's now, what, 14 years, I guess, of um, moving into something richer, fuller, uh, more respectful of the great tradition and historic Christianity and substantive theology. It was a hard journey. It wasn't easy. I mean, especially mm. when I began to critique American civil religion and the fact that the evangelical church in America had become the de facto religious wing of the Republican Party, that, that maybe was the hardest thing that I had to mm. say. Uh, it, we, we ended up losing more than a thousand people from our church. And these weren't just, you know, nameless faces to us. These were friends. These were people that we'd done life together. These were people that I had maybe led to the Lord, baptized, married them, wow. met, baptized their kids. Very difficult time we went through. When I say we, I'm, I'm referring somewhat to the church, but more to my wife and I, Perry and I. Right. It was a time of, a time of deep pain. Yet the strange thing was it was simultaneously deeply painful, but also the most exciting time. And so we had this, we were living in this weird juxtaposition of deep pain and, a, and just almost ecstatic joy simultaneously going on in right. our life. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that, that we've come through that time. You know, and it, it's the memories are there, but the pain is mostly healed. And it's just a very, very good season we're in. So I don't know. I, I don't know if 
I did a very good job of taking you from 1974 to 2014, but that's a, that's a little snippet of what my journey has been. No, that's really, that's really, really helpful. What I was going to ask, so we could hit some specifics. I have a lot of questions with that, but maybe one thing, and we will maybe as the episode plays out here, but, but to start when I'm just curious, how do you, how are you thinking about the world? You know, the, the, how do I say the, the sort of how, this journey. It seems to me that so many people are on this, this journey, very similar and have yes. been on a very similar journey to what, to what you just said. My question is, is it just because of technology that we now know that all these people are on the journey or are you seeing in terms of movement in the spirit and just what you're observing with people That's a good question. moving to this next level question. of depth? Like what, how do you, what's your temperature on all that? It's a question that I think about all the time. And I don't know that I can answer it directly, but let me just sort of riff on it a little bit. Uh, first of all, I hear from pastors probably daily uh, who are on, you know, I mean, there's there, there's different metaphors you can use. Sometimes people use the, the metaphor of deconstruction, right. which I'm not keen on. It's, it's too violent. I, I don't so much like that, although I understand it can be that way at times. Uh, for me, the metaphor I kind of gravitated toward was water turning to wine. That which was was thin, that which was uh, shallow, suddenly becoming, or not suddenly, but maybe slowly becoming deep and rich and robust. Um, I, I just know anecdotally that if I'm hearing from pastors every single day, and they're just more and more out there, that something is happening now. I suppose, of course, the phenomenon of stage of life and and pressing on deeper and moving beyond a, a childish faith into a more mature faith, I, that's always been a phenomenon throughout history. But I also think something must be happening right now. Um, I, it feels so many of us, so many people that I engage with and talk with come in some way or another from the evangelical milieu. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, I never described myself as an evangelical. I never have. Again, I, you know, I was a Jesus freak and then a charismatic, and we never called ourselves evangelicals. I mean, if you if you had asked us, you know, in 1979 or 1985 or 1992, are you evangelical? We would have said no. We're we're whatever we are. You know, Jesus movement. We're we're charismatics. We're something like that. It was the culture wars that drove all of this under one tent. And I think the culture wars have been disastrous, but that's a different topic. I, I just feel that a lot of people, mostly younger than me, you don't see, a, there are some, you know, you see some, but mostly younger than me have have really come to the point where even though they appreciate some of the gifts that have come to them via evangelical Christianity, they also see the thinness of it, the right. limitation of it, the lack of historicity, the lack of theological depth, the lack of respect for the great tradition. And now it's present crisis where it seems entirely captured by a politicized agenda. And so people are just looking for something better. And Jesus said, seek and you'll find asking it'll be given to you, knock, and the door will be open. And they're finding these resources, often in the forms of books, and nowadays, I guess, also podcasts, and something yeah. is happening in them. And uh, so so I think there is a movement. I don't have a name for it. I don't know what it would be called. I'm not interested in putting a name on it. But as one who is thoroughly immersed in it, in that people, because of what I've written and what I've said in my own story, they reach out to me. I am very aware that this is bigger than you think. Mm. It's it's probably bigger than I think. Uh, something is happening right now. I, it would take maybe a very specialized sociologist with understanding of religious phenomenon to maybe explain what's going on. That's, I think, beyond what I can do. But something is happening. Exactly why and now and that's a complex thing. I wish somebody would write a really thorough book on it, but yeah. Interesting. Stephen, I was going to maybe lead into some of the, some of the John three stuff. Would you, were you going to ask a particular question? <clears throat> I mean, gosh, there was the, um, 
we, we'll, we'll put a link to it up on, I guess, on the show notes. One of the uh, one of my favorite sermons uh, that, I, that I've heard, I guess, in recent years from you, Brian, um, was your Jesus, Jesus by Night. It was Lent of 2017, and it's just a walkthrough of uh, of John three. So we thought it'd be interesting just to just to sort of put you in your wheelhouse and have you kind of walk us through John three. We'll talk about some uh, you know, new birth, rebirth, conversion. Um, transformation versus transaction, and uh, yeah. just kind of let you take it. And and Brian, I'm going to cut you off like I always cut Stephen off, and just say for intro, just so you know, our so church, Stephen and I have Church of Christ roots. So I don't right. know how familiar you are with Church of Christ tradition. A little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah so we been invited to speak to y'all now and then. So oh <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So what's interesting, and in, so particularly in our sort of. Um, you know, stream of churches of Christ, you know, John three. So this passage of, of Nicodemus visiting Jesus at night and, and this language of new birth, um, this was a go-to text, particularly for evangelism and essentially in justification of kind of our core tenets, like water baptism, which is, you know, one of the, the an immerse, immersion baptism um, for forgiveness of sins and that being sort of a required, um, a, a, an ultimate requirement and necessity to get into heaven is kind of how we said it. Like, hey, look, Jesus in this passage, it's, it's clearly him telling us how to get to heaven, how to get saved. And if you're going to do that, you need to do it by water and spirit, which must mean you get baptized in which you receive the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins. Um, so, and I'm, I'm not actually even downplaying that as like horrific theology and like the worst thing that ever happened to me by any means, but clearly there's a lot more going on here than just a salvation formula. So I want to yeah. kind of tee that up to you. Yeah. A little. And, and, and you interject the idea of heaven. I totally get that. That's American pop Christianity that John three and the phrase being born again is all about, you know, repeat after me, pray this prayer. Now you got to dick to heaven. You're good to go. Uh, except Jesus never does, isn't talking about any of that. He's not talking about going to heaven when you die. Here's the story. There's this guy, Nicodemus, and he's called the teacher. He's the, he's the leading voice among the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees definitely get a bad rap, right? I get that. Right. Uh, because they end up largely, not, not exclusively, because you have the Sadducees and the chief priests, which are a different thing altogether, and we don't probably have time to go into that. They also have their role to play. But um, the Pharisees are the most frequent antagonist in the gospel story with Jesus. I think Jesus was closer to the Pharisees than any of the other political movements. Hmm. So if people see me as being pretty critical of evangelicalism, well, that's partly because I somewhat, more or less, even if I deny it, belong to that world to a certain extent. And I think that's a yeah. situation. But the Pharisees, okay, who are they? They are a movement that had begun about 130 years before Christ, before Jesus is on the scene, during the forced Hellenization program by the Syrian kings who were trying to make Jews become Greeks and not be Jewish. And it was this movement that said, no, let's hold on to our identity. We're the people of God. Let's not be assimilated by a pagan Greek culture. And so they became known as the the the, the separates or the separatists or the one that said we have to be separate. And that's what Pharisee means. And so it begins as this good movement saying we must remain loyal to Yahweh, to the Torah, to our traditions, to our high calling. Uh, unfortunately, by the time you arrive at the time of Jesus, they become highly moralistic. They're kind of a uh, a policing group. They are convinced that if God is going to send Messiah and do his work, then Israel needs to be holy again. They're trying to take back Israel for God, but it's according to their own understanding and interpretation. So Pharisee isn't a clerical status. They're, they're not clerics. It's a, it's a religious political movement or party. Think of it as a party. And their most eloquent, their most educated, their most uh, notable teacher, rabbi, is this guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, no doubt, is aware of what Jesus is doing. Uh, Pharisees have generally been opposed to what Jesus is doing for a, new, a number of reasons, not the least of which is he really didn't belong to them. And so they were opposed to someone outside their tribe 
announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, because if the kingdom of God was going to come, they were quite sure it was going to be from within their own movement. And so someone that's not fully within their movement is announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, and they're disturbed by this. Uh, Nicodemus, though, is a deeper soul. He's a more thoughtful man, and he can't just go along with the with the accusations of the less thinking Pharisees and they say things like, you know, he does what he does by the devil and Beelzebub. And so when Jesus finally shows up in Jerusalem, Nicodemus has to see him, but there's implications, you know, to be seen hanging out with Jesus. And so he comes by night and he arrives to where Jesus is staying. Somehow this had been arranged, I suppose, sort of a clandestine uh, meeting and Nicodemus opens by saying, look, we know, we know you must come from God. Teacher calls him a rabbi, treats him as a peer, and says, we know you must come from God. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. I'm not going to say the ridiculous thing that some of my compatriots are saying that you're, you do what you do by the devil. No, it's not the devil. God is with you. And then he falters as if he can't find the words to say, but but you're not one of us, so how can this be? Jesus helps him out and just says, look, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus says here is very important. He uses an idiom that literally means born from above. And so some translations will translate it as born from above. But to translate it born again is actually more correct because it's an idiom that would be similar to our idiom, take it from the top. Wow. Uh, think about musicians that are Example. working on a song and they're maybe working on one section and then another section. And then the band leader says, all right, guys, let's take it from the top. That means to go back to the beginning and do the whole thing. Wow, that's interesting. As Nicodemus, unless you're willing to rethink everything, take it from the top, rethink everything you've assumed everything you think you know, if you are not willing to put on the table everything and rethink it from the top to the bottom, you will not perceive the kingdom of God, even though it's right here. Now look, Jesus call to Peter and Andrew and James and John and some others was to leave their nets. Well, you know, that's pretty radical. I mean, that means quit their jobs, right. leave their vocation. They're fishermen, uh, they're not recreational fishermen. They're vocational fishermen. Jesus challenges them to leave their nets and to follow him. And they did. And that's impressive, you know, for people to to abandon their financial security to follow Jesus. That's, that's pretty impressive. But I have to tell you, I'm more impressed by uh, Professor Nicodemus, who has tenure, who's published, who— yeah. And here this young rabbi, a little over 30 years old, who has no formal training, is saying, you're going to have to rethink your theology. You're going to have to rethink. I understand that you have a whole systematic theology, and you're published, and you have tenure, and you have a reputation. But if you want to perceive the kingdom of God, you're going to have to rethink everything. If not, even though it's happening right here, you will not be able to perceive it. The amazing thing is that Nicodemus does it. Remember, Nicodemus is, is one of the council members that stands up for Jesus, along with Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus is also there at the, at the burial. He's the one that—Nicodemus is the one that went and bought a hundred pounds of spices, which is an absurd amount of money. Uh, it, it's 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 outlandish. It's ridiculous. Uh, obviously, Nicodemus was a very wealthy man, but Nicodemus is saying something there. Nicodemus is giving this peasant poet, preacher, prophet from Galilee, whom he has actually come to believe is the Messiah, that is the king, who's been though betrayed and condemned, turned over by the Sanhedrin, crucified by the Romans. He is giving him a kingly burial. In other words, this is his final testament that I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the kingly Messiah. Wow, wow. So I'm really impressed with Nicodemus that, that a man that was probably older, let's say he's in his 60s, maybe his 70s, 
had enough flexibility of mind that when he encounters the truth, he says, yeah, okay, I'm willing to rethink everything. Oh, and don't forget there's that part where where Nicodemus responds and says, yeah, but can a man uh, go into his mother's womb a second time and be born again? And some people have thought that Nicodemus was daft and was literalizing Jesus' metaphor and, and was just missing the point. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Not at all. I mean— Metaphor is the stock and trade of teaching rabbis. Uh, Nicodemus completely gets it. He he understands what Jesus is asking of him, but he plays along with the metaphor. And he's saying, well, really, can I? I mean, you're asking me to be born again, but look at me. You know, I'm no spring chicken. I'm an old man. You're asking me to rethink everything at this stage of life? And Jesus says, verily, verily. If you don't, you're going to miss it. If you don't, you're not going to see it. If you don't, you're not going to be a part of it. And the old man does it and is willing to rethink his theology probably late in life. So my hat's off to Nicodemus. I want to salute that. Wow. Yeah. Can you try, can you shed light on, just to kind of round out the story, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes oh, and, you yeah. hear, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I'm looking around my table here for, I don't have the Bible I want. Yes, I do. Hold on. Let me grab it. So I got to ask, what, what Bible is it you want? Is this? I want a message Bible. Okay. All right. Right, right here. This is actually a, a message in New American Standard side-by-side Bible. We only, we only sanction the, the NIV, but not the new one. <laughs> okay. Um here we go. Here we go. This is the New Living Translation. You know, I like the New Living. Yeah. Don't be critical of the New Living. No, new no I'm with you. I'm not and, hating and fact, on the New Living. My dad loves New Living. I like so it. If you're new to the faith and they're going to read the Bible, that's my go-to translation. Really? And, and, no way. And if you get the Jesus-centered Bible, that's a study edition of the New Living. I wrote oh, wow. into four chapters, to, to four books. I wrote the introduction to Jonah, Matthew, Titus, and Revelation. Because, you know, you got to be careful who does Revelation. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you get hurt doing that. That's right. Here's John 3, 8 in New Living. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. But that's exactly what we wanted to do. We wanted there to be no room for mystery and for the Spirit to do something entirely unique. I mean, you know, we we know the cliche, but it's actually true that no two snowflakes are alike. And yet we want every born-again experience to kind of be cookie-cutter, you know, factory, conveyor belt. Everything's the same. Here, pray this prayer. This is how you get saved. Uh, I don't think it works that way. Hmm. Um, How are we born of the Spirit? Every story is different. It's how people open to the presence of the Spirit as it beckons to them, as it calls them, as it introduces them to Jesus and invites them into a new life of following Him. Um, So, I mean, if 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 you... if you get to people before they've learned to adjust their story of really encountering Jesus to fit the dominant narrative of their particular tribe, if you listen to them, you'll find every story is unique. And we have to have room for the Spirit to work with each person. So, so I'm, I'm deeply suspicious of the, of the modern... Evangel- evangelism techniques. I believe in the evangel. I don't know about the ism. Evangelism. Mm. I, I believe in talking about Jesus. I believe in the kerygma. I believe in proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God in Christ. I believe in all that. Evangelism, when it becomes a technique, when it becomes, you know, a formula, we got our, you know, our Roman road, our four laws, our three steps to how to become a Christian. I'm deeply suspicious of that. Mm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if you, if you were, if you were going to try to explain to somebody or, or to kind of walk them through 
uh, I mean, obviously you can't explain how it's done, but where, where would you, where do you, where do you start? What are the things that need to be rethought? Where do you? Well, first of all, salvation or preaching the gospel isn't an explanation. It's a proclamation. It's an, it's an announcement uh, centered on the announcement that Jesus is Lord, which Again, though, is a bit of a problem for us because Lord has become a purely uh, spiritual term. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we, so when we say Jesus is Lord, there should be like an asterisk that says of your spiritual life. Mm. And of course, spiritual life is to be uh, differentiated from your real life. <laughs> it's <just that. laughs> right, right. Well, of course, in the original context of this first announcement, Lord was a political term. I mean, consider this. In, in, in the first century in the Roman Empire, of which you know, is where the, Jesus and the apostles are uh, announcing their gospel. By the way, gospel. Gospel is also a imperial term. We, we know, you know, euangelion means good news. Everybody knows that. But it, but it, 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 whereas as far as the etymology, yes, it means good news, but it really meant, it had come to mean an official imperial announcement, mm. an official White House press release, that sort of thing. It's uh, a good metaphor. So, so in the, in, in the, in the Roman world, the Roman Empire of the first century, where the church is being birthed and, and growing, terms like son of God, prince of peace, savior of the world, king of kings, lord, were all imperial titles belonging to Caesar, given to the Caesar by the Senate. And they were announced through the only means of mass communication available to them that was on the coinage. So that all in all on all the coins in the Roman Empire, you would have on one side you would have an image of the emperor with one of his Senate conferred titles, King of Kings or Prince of Peace, Savior of the World, Son of God, uh, Lord. The early Christians then begin to reappropriate those titles that are already in circulation. Yes, some of them have similar origins within Hebrew tradition, but some of them belong purely to the uh, Roman Empire. And they're saying, no, it's not Caesar who's Lord. It's not Caesar who saves the world. It's not Caesar who's the true son of God. It's not Caesar that is that deserves our allegiance. It's not Caesar that's going to bring peace to the nations. It's Jesus. Mm. And now you see kind of wow, a political yeah. edge. And this is why the early Christians were persecuted, not for religious reasons. You know, we think of the gospel in a very mistaken way that it's mostly about how to go to heaven when you die. Uh, I can promise you the Roman Empire didn't care where you went when you died. Right. <laughs> they weren't going to persecute you for telling people how to go to heaven when you die. They would say, fine, dude, I, we don't care. In fact, the Roman Empire was amazingly religiously tolerant. I mean, that's part of their success is they 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 had a lot of tolerance for local religious custom, belief, and practice. What they didn't tolerate was someone claiming that someone other than Caesar was Lord. Right, right. That's what the Christians were doing. So the the, the gospel announcement is that the world has a new emperor. His name is Jesus, and you can belong to his kingdom now. Part of the benefits of coming into his kingdom is the amnesty that he grants you, that all of your sins are forgiven. But that's only part of what's going on. What is really going on is that we are invited to participate in the alternative alternative society that comes from heaven where Jesus is reigning and ruling. And we are being offered a, a way, a truth, a life of human flourishing as we build our life around Jesus Christ. Excellent. We announce the gospel. We announce the gospel, and and then we invite people to come into it. And and by the way, Church of Christ is correct. The formal doorway into participation in this kingdom is baptism. Yeah. All our friends are going to buy all your books. Congrats. You've won them over. I'm just yeah. a little I know these things. Now, here, here's the problem. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. I can, 
and I'm I'm sure that Church of Christ is uh, you know a believer's baptism, not infant baptism. Correct. I can, I can argue both sides. I mean, we practice a believer's baptism at our church at Word of Life. Uh, they can be quite young. Uh, our kind of our criteria is that they be old enough. I don't say old enough to know what's happening because I'm 59 and I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're not at the age of accountability. <laughs> say old enough to have a memory of it. That's what okay. I'm going to aim for. Old huh. enough to have a memory of it. So. Typically, though, we don't. It's, it's rare that we baptize people before I don't know, eight or nine or ten. It mm-hmm. does happen, but that's rare. Um, so, but but I understand. I understand the arguments for infant baptism. I do get that. I'm sympathetic to it. In the end, I probably, if I'm if push comes to shove, and I have to choose, I probably choose against that. But what happened was, you ended up in Europe with an entire baptized continent. Right. So, Ooh, talk so, about so when everyone is baptized, and yet you're kind of realizing that not everyone is really living their baptismal identity, well, that's what gives rise to revivalism. You know, with I mean, following Anabaptists, right? Anabaptists in the second wave of Refor- Reformation, and then uh, as you get into the 18th century, you have Whitfield and Wesley. And Edwards in the United States and, and or America. Um, so, what happens then is the altar call. Once we and then go on another few generations, sure, yeah. you get to Charles Finney, the, the salvation altar call, sinner's prayer, walk the aisle, all of that replaces baptism because mm-hmm. you're trying to find a way for people to come into a real, living, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ in a Christendom. Uh, so I understand why it happened, but when the day is done, we don't have the right uh, to replace baptism with altar call and sinner's prayer. So Got it. baptism is the uh, initiation rite, the, the formal entryway into full participation in the kingdom of Christ. Um, Got it. So let me, let me ask you this. What is the, practically, how do, what do you see as the distinction where between— um, Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus is Lord, and then sort of, I guess, uh, proclaiming or a- asking the question, have you made Jesus your Lord and Savior? Well, the problem, we're, we're dealing with language issues here. And I think the best thing we can do, now, th- this will be less of a problem in successive generations because America is clearly on a post-Christian trajectory. Mm-hmm. But but in a culture that still has a lot of the language and trappings of uh, Christian vocabulary, uh, the, the great enemy to our announcement of the gospel is cliché. Hmm. And so people, I mean, cliché allows you to just, uh, you don't hear it. It, it just passes right by you. It's cheap. It's empty. It, it doesn't move people. So I try to talk without using traditional cliches. Now, now some some cliches. I mean, I, I we just got done talking about being born again. Uh, I will talk about born again in the context that I just did, rethinking everything in the light of Christ. You have to be willing to rethink everything if you're going to fully participate in the kingdom of God. So I'll talk. I'll use the born again. Term, but I wouldn't simply initiate a conversation or in the context of some evangelistic presentation, I wouldn't ask, are you born again? Because that, all of a sudden that's just loaded. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, let's, yeah. let's be honest. A, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people in the current context in America today are going to hear that. Are you a conservative Republican? That's right. how they're going to hear that. So I avoid that sort of stuff. Also, one of the things we do at Word of Life, and we do it without irony, uh, we do it in good faith, is we make no distinction essentially between evangelism and discipleship. To us, they're all one and the same thing. Uh, yes, there is that an initial commitment to Christ, but then living out your faith and 
because if you if you make a hard distinction between evangelism and discipleship, what you end up doing is concocting an idea of how you hand out your tickets to heaven. Here, pray this prayer, do this. Now you're going to heaven, and then we're forever trying to sell people on the optional <laughs> of discipleship. And the optimal upgrade is that what you said? The optional upgrade? Yeah, that's how it's viewed. And uh, right, the other yeah. thing we do is. Uh, we also see ourselves, and this is going to be controversial, and it could be taken the wrong way, and I would understand that, but maybe I could unpack it. Um, we see our task as involving, anyway, evangelizing Christians. <laughs> Not prosel- Explain that. Pro- proselytizing, but I mean people who are culturally Christians, and maybe it could give you a, a testimony of a, quote, born-again experience, but it, that has all been so tangled up with Americanism that that we see part of our task is to announce the gospel of the kingdom to people in the American context where Christianity and just general American civic values have morphed into one and the same. And we're trying to challenge them and show them that they're not the same. So can I give you, can I queue up a question to unpack that, Brian? I, so one thing, <laughs> um, so going back to, the passage, you know, in reading it, a certain interpretation without placing judgment on that interpretation would say, okay, Jesus is telling us how, if we want to become Christians and enter the kingdom, if there is going to be an event singular where I enter it, where I have to rethink or, or repent, change my mind, be baptized, confess my sins, whatever the package is we put together, then once I do that, and, and again, going back to the kind of formulaic thinking, what that happens on a on one-time basis, a transaction will occur. I will end up on the other side as a renewed, reborn person that will enter the kingdom. Clearly, what, what we're, we're not talking about that, but what we are, but, but this is a, you know, there's a constant rethinking. You said you're, you're 59 years old. You've led a, a church for 20, 30 years. You've gone through your transformation as an individual. And then with a, in a congregation, clearly there's been this renewal and this rethinking. And part of what I would imagine with Nicodemus is a man that has had 50, 60, 70 years of experience having to rethink that is so, to your point earlier, what seems almost way more radical than like 15-year-old James and John on the Sea of Galilee. So my, my question is this. Number one, feel free well, to vamp well, on that. I, I Go ahead, yeah. It's <laughs> to a certain extent of being both a uh, whatever, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and being a Nicodemus. In other words, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a radical encounter with Jesus when I was 16, uh, numerous times in... in uh, Numerous times, you know, we, my wife and I would give away everything and we're living by faith and we're starting a church and we're, we're risking everything financially. I know what that's like and I don't downplay that. That's, that's serious stuff. Uh, but when you're doing it, when you're, you know, 21, 22, 25, that's, that's one thing. At, when, at age 45, when I really seriously, seriously started rethinking everything, I tell you that was more difficult, more costly uh, more threatening, more risky. And so my question is, what are the kind of things like give us, let's give, give us some examples. I'm sure we've already hit some of it. When we talk about that transformation, the rethinking, even for those who are in Christendom or have been Christian, you know, culturally or grew up in it, or have taken discipleship really seriously since a young age, um, what are, where do the wheels kind of begin to fall off or maybe voluntarily being thrown off to be, you know, to, to be rethought and, um, how does that kind of shed light on, or, or how did that affect your experience and what are some of those specific things that you grappled with as a church? Well, at the very center of it, the, the first thing I'll say is the kingdom of God had to become real. Part of the problem is, is it's religious language that can easily turn into cliche that we can easily dismiss or pretend that we understand. Another problem is that the word kingdom itself is largely archaic. We don't talk about kingdoms. I mean, if I say kingdom, we're thinking, you know, medieval times or fairy tales or Lord of the Rings or something like that. I mean, in our real day-to-day life, we don't use the word kingdom. We use the word government. We use the word politics. And so Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled. Believe the good news. 
the government of God, the politics of God, the reign and rule of God are now breaking into the world. Now, repent, okay, repent. Again, we, we, we hear that primarily as a command to change your moral behavior, and that may be an outgrowth of repentance, but repentance, both in the Hebrew, and then if you really understand the etymology in the English, is, you know, it's repense, you know, pense, French, think, thoughts, uh, to, to rethink. All right, so, so there is an alternative to this world. So we started really exploring what it meant to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Well, it didn't take too long to figure out that chain, that challenges a lot of other assumptions. Uh, what is our what what is what is the primary purpose of salvation? Is it to go to heaven, or rather, are we thinking about uh, is it is it to live out a, a salvific life here and now? Yes, I believe in heaven. So fine, I'll confess the Apostles' Creed and all that if you want. But uh, how, how do we live out our salvation? Uh, what 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 is the what is the eschatological hope? for the church. Is it is the blessed hope we're going? No, the blessed hope is Christ is coming. Uh, we don't want to be like the Gnostics who said, this world is not my home. No, this world is our home. This world is our home, and we are, we are now anticipating the coming of Christ, seeking to be an anticipation of the future right now as we live out the reality of the reign of Christ. But then that, that challenges other allegiances. In my book, mm-hmm. A Farewell to Mars, I began to challenge the idea that um, the waging of war is compatible with following Christ. Sounds very radical, extremely radical in America in the early 21st century. And yet this was largely, almost entirely, almost universally, the position of the early church for the first three centuries. Did you write that during the like whole of the Bush years of uh, I wrote, yeah, like, it was the war on terror? 2014. Oh, okay. A farewell to Mars came out in 2014. Yeah. Wow. And that, but that was coming out of a large, a, a lot of that was coming out of your experience having, and I remember reading that book, praying particular prayers, having a particular, you know, even in your congregation. Uh, I remember you talking about, I believe it was viewing, either viewing that war or the Gulf Wars or some kind of previous experience. You talk about this kind of great sin that you realized that you'd committed in your life and. Uh, but and there was clearly a really radical change, which I would assume was very disruptive in a you know church of however many thousand folks that weren't used to hearing Brian's on talk that way. The interesting thing is, when I was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, I knew that Jesus taught nonviolence. I mean, I just read the Sermon on the Mount. It's pretty easy. I mean, you can ha- you can just you know toss a sixteen year old kid who who hasn't been scripted yet, just have him be right. a tabla rosa, be a blank slate. Say here, it'll take you you know fifteen minutes. Read Matthew five six and seven, uh, and then you ask him, did Jesus teach nonviolence? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's reported that Gandhi said everyone knows that Jesus taught nonviolence except Christians. <laughs> <laughs> So, I haven't heard that one. I, I knew, I knew then, I knew that war, waging war, was incompatible with following Christ when I was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, um, and then I began to be taught, and I began to be taught why. Well, what what is clearly the case wasn't clearly the case, and eventually, by the time I was, you know, whatever, thirty six, thirty seven, thirty eight. I was extremely comfortable with war, believed that God was on our side, believed that in some way or another the American military war machine was an instrument of God's purpose in the earth. All of that, which is pretty common today, uh, until I began to really uh, rethink some things in the in light of the kingdom of God. I began to be born again again. Uh, but I still hadn't really broached upon the subject of violence and war in a deep way. But one day I was in prayer, uh, sitting with Jesus. This is a form of contemplative prayer that it's it, that I practice, and it's I don't have time maybe to go into all that it is, but it's really pretty simple. It's it's as advertised. It's sitting with Jesus. <laughs> I and, and I was just sitting in the presence of Jesus, having prayed, and without 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 any thought that such a thing would happen. There was, there was no train of thought that led to this. Suddenly, a memory came to me 
that was more like an incriminating surveillance video. And I remembered myself back in 1991, the first Gulf War, being so excited about this war that for the first time it's going to be on TV. You know, CNN is covering it. Wolf Blitzer is over in Baghdad and whatever else. And I invited some friends over. We ordered pizza. We watched a war on TV. America won, and I was entertained. Uh, I didn't. I I never thought anything about it. And from 19. 91 to I think it was maybe like 2005 or six. Um, I never thought about that again. Hmm. And but that day when I was sitting with Jesus, I saw myself watching war while eating pizza on TV, like it's a Super Bowl, and being entertained. And okay, I'll just say it as I say it, and people can decide whether they believe me or not. But I heard Jesus say, Brian, that was your worst sin. Mm. It struck me down. I mean, I, I, I wept and I repented deeply. And that opened the door. And some some things, some other things I read from Dostoevsky and some others. And that put me on a trajectory where I began to think about writing about what I what I think I, do I have that book right here. Yeah, I do. I'm going to read you something from it, but that's all right. Yeah, please do. Um, oh, go ahead, please. And I, I always kind of thought that I would put this book off. Well, in fact, I'll just here, – here, it's very short. This, I call this the prelude. And I wrote the prelude not to the reader but to the book, if this makes sense. Okay, I'd written the book, and the last thing I wrote was, was what becomes the prelude, and it's me speaking to the book that I've written. It, okay. it goes like this. Dear little book, I had to write you. You wouldn't let me sleep until you were written. You were rude in your insistence. I had thought I would wait till I was older, till I had less to lose before I wrote you. But then Jude, Mercy, and Finn came along. Those are my grandchildren. And you insisted on being written for them. So I did your bidding. Now you are written. Soon you will be let loose to go where you will and speak to whom you may. Try not to cause me too much trouble. At least be kind enough to remind your readers that in writing you, I only told the truth. I wish you well. You're somewhat reluctant author, Brian Zond. <laughs> I, love that. I love that. But you know what? You know what? The truth of the matter is this book has really not caused me much pushback, except among people who haven't read it. I get, I get <laughs> right. criticism right. for this book from people who haven't read it and assume they think they know what it says. Yeah. Uh, I've had a lot of remarkable things. So I'm going to tell the most remarkable, but this is, this is just one of a category. Um, there was a young man working for the CIA, and he was in Afghanistan directing drone strikes. Wow. He was also listening to A Farewell to Mars. I think it's also on Audible or something like that. And during the course of being in Afghanistan, working for the CIA, directing drone strikes, he's listening to a farewell to Mars and finally goes to his commanding officer and says, I can't do this anymore. Hmm. And he resigned. Uh, The last thing that he had to do, though, before leaving the CIA was he had to appear before the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon. And he gave his final report. And then from their conference room, stole one of their coffee cups <laughs> and brought it to me. Came, came to visit me in St. Joseph and told me this story. Wow. I've had maybe, I can think of probably seven or eight um, career military officers who've read this book and have changed vocations as a result of it. Wow. Um, and, I have, and I have had no, like, um, attacks from yeah. military people who've read it. Now they may not all agree, but it's it's the it's career military people who have been my most serious conversation partners about this book. Mm. That's so, awesome. That that's interesting, isn't it? I, I feel like when you, I, I've been wrestling with the the whole the nonviolence thing for a while, um, and I'm 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 thinking I'm kind of I'm coming around to sort of. I guess really adopting that, that as a, as a, as a conviction. But one of the, one of the things that I find is, is difficult to wrap my mind around 
is is what it, what it means about God. So like sometimes you you can there's 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 a whole part of like like Jesus yeah, tells us that's why I wrote sinners in the hands of the yeah. living God. <laughs> Jesus Jesus tells us you know not to not to uh, you know to, to love our enemies and things and and that's great. But you can keep it, I guess what I'm saying is it has to do with the, with the definition of power because power can still be coercion might like the ability to sort of to to triumph over somebody and have a and you, you can have that and a fully intact like penal substitutionary atonement mm-hmm. but if what Jesus is offering to Nicodemus is kind of taking it from the top and and if if what is really behind this whole nonviolence thing is actually that what we have misunderstood what power really is then then what it involves is even reframing the categories that we use to describe God. Um, I don't think there's any Christian. I mean, can you imagine a Christian saying um, the cross has no power? No. Oh, no, there's power. Yeah, there's power. Yeah. I mean, look at it. What This is the power of God. Nailed to a tree. Arms outstretched in proffered embrace, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the power. Now, uh, my favorite theologian from the 20th century probably is Hans Urs von Balthasar. Yeah. Which, what a cool name to begin with. That is an awesome name. That would be awesome. Zond is a Swiss name. I come from Swiss heritage. I've been trying to convince my kids to name one of my grandchildren Hans Urs von Balthasar Zond. And so far, none of them have taken me up on that. Although my oldest son said, we could do it like they do with stadiums. And if you pay me enough, you can have right. a name. <laughs> like a tattoo or something on their back or something. Right, yeah. but here is my all-time favorite theological sentence. And it comes from Hans Urs von Balthasar. And it goes like this. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death. Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. There's a ton of my own theology that just wrapped up in that one sentence. I'm going to say it again. Being disguised. So so you look at the cross, and there there is a kind of disguise there. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. So... If if you are if you are a Orthodox Christian, you know small o, Orthodox Christian, uh, you will confess that God is omnipotent. That is, God is all powerful. That's we've always confessed that. But what does that power look like? Does it look like Thor with his hammer? Does it look like just a, a great big version of Caesar or Pharaoh? No. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. That mm. that in in the cross we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. Yeah, which Jesus yeah. was willing to die for that which he was unwilling to kill. Yes. See, we we use the euphemism of dying for your nation in a military context. But what we really mean is to kill for your nation. But in the process of killing for your nation, other people may not like being killed. And so they might fight back and you might end up being killed. But the, the goal is not to go die. The goal, the goal is to go kill and, and hopefully not die. Uh, Jesus was willing to die for that which he was unwilling to kill. Hmm. But that is so different than the world that we are formed in that uh, you have to be born again to be able to see it. Yeah, you right, Stephen. Talk and rethink everything. Stephen, I was just going to say, I think the language you use and we've heard you use is it's it's a it's a radical changing of categories, not just content. So it's it's not a same power structures, same way of thinking, but just new different theology or a nice new twist or a better understanding of what happens when we die or different one offs. It's a complete rethinking and an, a complete categorical shift from the ways of empire and the and the ways of the world. Yeah, I like Henry Nowen has this language. That, I love his little book, uh, "Downward Mobility in the Spiritual Life." And that 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 phrase of of, of downward mobility, they decide to that. always pure gold. That's oh, just I love it. Oh my gosh! It's such a short little book, and it's such a quick and easy read. Uh, 
And and I love his stories. He, he was so smart, so gifted. He could write short books. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. He was right. concise. Exactly. Right. That's the, I, don't, I don't know of any big books that he wrote. <laughs> no, that's, that makes a lot of sense. It, but the, the thing that makes it so difficult with this, like reframing God this way is that like we're, we're guys in our twenties, late twenties, almost 30. Good heavens. Well, that's coming up. Um, and, and we're at this stage in life where it's like, everything is framed. Um, you know, it, winning is always up and to the right. Yes. That's the trajectory. That's making it. It's always up and to the right. Go, 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 go. And frankly, even sometimes like churches are like that, right? So it's totally. always more butts, more butts, more, you know, we got to, we got to rethink how we're going to have a new strategy to continually move ourselves up and to the right. But this, this trying to, trying to sit with Jesus, I guess I need to learn how to do that uh, long enough to where, the 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 downward mo the downward mobility becomes what it, what it's about. So it's a, it's a, a I, I just that's that's hard. <laughs> I mean, wow. Some of it's stage of life stuff too. Um, I mean, look, I, I just told you I've been a pastor since technically since I was twenty two, but really earlier than that. Uh, and I went through a you know I mean I spent a lot of my life being very interested in growing a church. And having the, you know, the typical metrics of success that Americans are fascinated by. And I experienced that. I liked it. But I have to tell you, I mean, I'm not just saying this. It's even astounding to me today how little I care about that. Hmm. I just, yeah, I just don't. I don't know. It's like asking me to get excited about ballet. I'm just, I appreciate it, but I'm just not, it's just not going to happen. I'm just not that excited about it. Um, but there was a time when I was, I think some of it's state of life and some of it is my own transition I've been through. Uh, Teaching people how to pray well, um, helping people to find an unvarnished Jesus, that is, a Jesus uh, where the lacquer of red, white, and blue, star-spangled varnish has been removed, so they can mm-hmm. see a non-American. That, that, that thrills me. That excites me. I'll tell you what's, what has stayed the same, and I, you know this, this is not empty rhetoric. I started off because I was fascinated by Jesus, and that's never abated. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've been thinking about grace lately. Um, In the West, in the theological West, the ecclesial West, we're used to things that we talk about grace being unmerited favor, and there's that kind of language. But it's almost always forensic or economic metaphors. Uh, Grace is that which— enables you to be declared not guilty. Now, I'm not saying that's all wrong. I'm just saying in the Orthodox East, they define grace as divine energy. I like that. I like it all. <laughs> divine energy. And so Eugene Peterson says we have to, one of the most important things for pastors to do is to help people recognize where grace is at work in their life. Well, see, if you've already reduced grace to this this courtroom metaphor where through some means you're declared not guilty, then it becomes kind of like a one-time sort of thing right? Uh, rather than this, this divine energy that's flowing into our life. And one of the areas where I can identify grace, divine energy, a work in my life, is in my curiosity— that I that I never really did reach the point where I was satisfied with just um, this is the answer I've known the answer for thirty years this is the answer I'm going to give you there we're done with that uh, I, I there was always a curiosity that you know yeah but what is God really like and and um, isn't there isn't there an if God is infinite then isn't there an infinite journey that awaits us. And, and that remaining curious was really a saving grace in my life. Mm. 
That's helpful. Yeah, that means a lot. Brian, well, this has been this has been awesome. I so appreciate your time. And maybe as we wrap here, I'd love for you to put a plug plug out there for, for your new book out and coming hopefully soon, Postcards from Babylon. Yeah, Can you give us have, a taste, a teaser? We have a, a release date. I think probably I have a release month. <laughs> it's I, I think it'll be out by January. It's okay. called Postcards from Babylon. Uh, the Church in American Exile. Hmm. This book that I'm wanting to get out in a hurry, which isn't always easy to do, because I think it, it's time sensitive. It's a book written to this present hour. Uh, I'll, I'll, I, how many people have read it? I've read it. My wife has read it. And Walter Brueggemann is probably reading it right now. He's going to write the foreword. That's it. There are only three, there are only three people that have read this book. Yeah, that's it. I will read you the chapter titles. Yes, um, please, please do. There are ten chapters. Chapter number one: conversion, catacombs, and a counterculture. Two: a camino of crucifixes. Three: tangled up in red, white, and blue. <laughs> Four: in the time of tyrant king. Five, Exile on Main Street. You know, there's also the title of a Rolling Stones album. Uh Six, and this one I had to write a chapter someday entitled, There's Always Some Dude on a Horse. Yeah. (laughs) Seven, Satan, Your Kingdom Must Come Down. Eight, Feel the Falseness. Uh Uh-oh, chapter nine. Trumped. Uh, Chapter 10, Postcards from Babylon. Wow. Oh, man. That's awesome. Well, Brian, we're we're really excited. And the fact that Walter Brueggemann is writing the forward, I'm like getting all excited. You know, that's a power pair, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brian, thank you so much again. This has been great. And for our listeners, I just want to, we'll put links for sure in the bottom uh, to not only Brian's page word of and word of life, his books, uh, a number of things. But again, thank you so much, seriously, for taking your time to spend time with us. Good time. You guys are sharp young men. God bless you. Oh, well, thank (laughs) you. Thanks, Brian. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Really appreciate all the support recently. We've gotten some great feedback. And uh, for all of you that have reached out to us, we really appreciate it. Thank you for passing along to others that you have in mind. Stay tuned in the coming weeks. We have a number of guests slated to join us over the next month or so. Really looking forward to that time as well. Subscribe if you haven't. Otherwise, we'll see you on the next one. Thanks. Bye-bye.